Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter and owner of Crazy Chester Records. My guest today is Doug Cox. Doug is a world-renowned Canadian dobro player, producer, educator and artistic director and executive producer of the Vancouver Island Music Fest. He's also hosted radio and TV shows and is heavily involved in the folk music scene. Doug is one who always encourages interesting musical collaborations such as his Slide to Freedom albums that brought together musicians from America and India. I met Doug a couple years ago through our mutual friend Holger Peterson and we soon discovered our mutual love for all kinds of American and world music. I've been looking forward to sitting down with Doug to talk about our mutual love of music and all of his great projects that he's been involved with over the years. I caught up with him when he was in Nashville producing an album. And this was our conversation. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Doug. Thank, thank you, you for being my guest. Thank you, it's great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, driving or flying all the way from... Vancouver Island to Nashville to, to do this interview. Well, it was a long trip, but it was worth it. And I really had nothing else going on. So. Yeah, so that's a lie. So let's let's just get to the, the bottom of this, if you don't mind. You're here in town making a record. Would you mind talking a little bit about the no, project? No, not at all. I'm producing a, a record for a wonderful fiddle player and soon named April Birch. And uh, she's from the Ottawa Valley, originally in Canada and is one of Canada's finest step dancers and traditional fiddle players. Um, but this is a real step outside for her because we're making a, sort of an old school country record at Bill Vorndick's studio here in Nashville. And uh, we put together an incredible band of players and it's, it's just been an amazing experience. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about who, who you uh, got to play on the Well, record. we had Al Perkins on steel guitar and dobro. And we had Red Volkart from Austin uh, on guitar. And Red's actually a Canadian too, but he's lived in the States for a long time. Um, we had uh, Jason Coleman on piano. And Jason was Floyd Kramer's grandson. So he plays piano just like his grandpa did. And, and his contributions to the CD were amazing. Had your buddy Lynn Williams on drums. Mike Bob on bass. Um, Carmela Ramsey on backup vocals and Aubrey, I can't remember Aubrey's last name on, on backup vocals as well. I wonder who I'm forgetting. You got a couple of pretty cool uh, fiddle players too. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, Kenny and Joe from the Time Jumpers came in and did some triple fiddle stuff with April as well. So it's a it's a really cool record because it's uh, working with Bill, who was 
Marty Robbins, main producer for a long time. Um, he really knows how to get the old country sounds and where to place the piano and the steel and that kind of thing. And just working in Nashville, I'm used to producing records, but in Canada, it's like a whole different world doing it here. So it's been really fun. Yeah. So, and you have, a, well, probably quite a few uh, other Nashville connections, but you also perform in a trio with two Nashville, Nashvilleians. That's right. I have a brand new trio called The Primary Colors, and that's with Kim Ritchie and Linda McRae. And uh, we've been working together for, I guess, two years now, but really on and off, because I live on Vancouver Island, so it hasn't been that easy to get together. But most recently, we did a residency at the BAMP School of Fine Arts and wrote a bunch of songs together based on uh, the photographs of Dorothea Lang. And Dorothea was one of the main photographers during the Dust Bowl. Um, so her most famous picture is called Migrant Mother. I think most people would recognize that photo. Um, so we took a bunch of her pictures, basically, and kind of wrote a song around each photograph. And uh, it turned out really well, and we're, we're hoping to record that stuff very soon as well. Yeah. So we actually met not too long ago, about a year, a little over a year ago, through a Holger Peterson, who's a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. And we pretty soon, I guess, you know, just kind of discovered that we all like to geek out over all sorts of music. And... Uh, we all, uh, you know, I'm not saying we're all stuck in the past, but we are all very much interested in, in traditions and in, you know, the roots of all sorts of music. And uh, I know that's an, that's an important, you know, thing for you too. Oh, it uh, sure is. So uh, how, how were you initially like exposed to music or how did you get the music book like as a, as a young well i always had it i mean i've got i've got three older sisters and uh as i was a kid growing up each sister had their own taste in music and i was lucky enough to grow up in the 70s so there was a lot of really really cool interesting music around then so i heard music from their three bedrooms um that kind of educated me in the music of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, really, and that was that was where I first got the bug. Um, started playing guitar when I was eight years old, and played guitar and sang songs all my life, basically. And then, um, as far as the music business goes, I, I worked for record stores and I worked for a rack job distributor. If people don't remember what a rack jobber was. It was somebody who would send records out through a warehouse to. The sort of secondary places that sell sold records back then, like gas stations and restaurants and bookstores, that kind of thing. And then um, when I was in Edmonton, when I was about 18 years old, I did a radio show for the college radio station there and worked in a couple of record stores. And one day I got offered a job at the Edmonton Folk Festival with the guys that started that festival. And that was really my introduction to roots music because I was lucky enough to kind of innocently discover it. And I got to hang out with amazing people back then. Um, I didn't know who any of them were, and they were all the legends of blues and bluegrass and folk and country music and jazz. Um, and they all took to me because I was really young and interested, and, but not starstruck, really. 
because I didn't know who they were, right? And so I, I was kind of lucky enough to have a real innocent introduction to all sorts of different styles of roots music. And uh, it kind of grew from there. Were there any particular either performers or other music-related people that became mentors to you or that, you know, influenced you? Oh, more, for sure. More yeah, um, back then, uh, Al Perkins was actually one of those people because I hung out with him for for a night. Um, he was at the festival one year with Chris Hillman and Vassar Clements and a bunch of other folks, and we just started to talk. And uh, he was so kind and open about music that we talked about music for hours. And Long John Baldry was a was a real big one for me. John and I became friends back then. But then I got to play with him for the last couple of years of his life in his acoustic trio. Um, and he taught me a lot about music. Um, Doug Salm was a huge influence later on as I, I got to know him when he came and moved to Vancouver Island for a couple of years. And we got to be really close friends. So he introduced me to Tex-Mex music and a bunch of the kind of the Texas things that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark. There was there was a there was a lot of them, you know, and a lot of musicians that you no one would know that were my music teachers too, were also a huge influence. So there there was a whole bunch of them over the years. Yeah, R let me throw a couple other names at you. Uh, one of them is Amos Garrett. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, I met Amos. I didn't really get to know Amos until I moved to Vancouver Island. So that would have been in the eighties, I guess. But we got to be very close friends too and then I ended up getting to play with him a lot and uh, had a lot of discussions with Amos over the years since then. He's also come and played our festival a bunch of times but he taught me a lot about the sort of the Woodstock days and Amos is one of those guys that landed in so many of the most important hip music scenes right when they were happening you know so he went through the his days with Maria Maldar with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band later on with Doug yeah. Gene Taylor and you know not only that but um, he's one of the in, in my opinion one of the inventors of a style of guitar playing which is multi-string bending and he's also one of the finest rhythm guitar players on the planet and uh, his approach to music was a big influence as well and, and getting to play with him in his acoustic trio was a blast because um, Every night he would play at least one solo that just sounded like it came from Mars, you know. It was, uh, he's a truly inspired guitar player. And, and uh, what I mean by that is most people, after you play with them for a while, you kind of heard their language and, and they don't often do things that surprise you. But at least once a night, Amos would play something that you'd never heard him do before and he would never do again. He was just one of, is one of those kind of players. Yeah. There's another guitar player you're about to play with, who, to me, is like that, and that's Bill Kirchner. Yeah, Bill's Bill's a fabulous player. Um, I'm going to be doing some playing with him at, at the Folk Alliance up in Montreal in February. We did a tour together, I, I think it was two years ago, I think called the Mighty String Thing, which was a bunch of us that shared it in the round jam session on stage for a few dates in Canada. and. Bill is, is probably one of the most unknown great guitar players. I mean, he's known too, but um, he should be in anybody's list of the top players and songwriters too. The man's a brilliant songwriter and lots of fun to play with. You know, he's, he's one of those guys who just 
has a huge spark for, for life and music and everybody around him. And he told me he's going to come do a tour in Canada with me where we're just going to go play all the little bars on all the little islands that surround Vancouver Island. So it's really inspiring to see someone like that that's that age and that has done as much as he has and still just wants to go out and have fun, you know? Yeah, I just saw him at the Edmonton Folk Music Festival participating in a jam with different people from all over the world and just totally killing it. I mean, just immersing himself in all these different different genres and different, you know, musical cultures that he probably hadn't been exposed to a whole lot or at all, but he just, like, you know, could put on the switch and, you know, and he would just, he would just become part of it. Yeah, he would just jump in and start playing. We did a, um, a tour that we did together. We had a guitar player, her name is uh, Cecile Dukinge. She's from Montreal and she's a, a African blues guitar player. And she's one of those kind of players too, where her, her playing goes back and forth between uh, Cameroon style of African guitar and blues stuff. She grew up in New York um, and Cameroon and Bill just jumped right in with her as well. Um, he can play with anybody for sure. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, him, being also a really great songwriter. Another great songwriter that might not be as well known to to wider public was Bob Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. Bob was one of Canada's finest songwriters, and uh, he made a record in the early '70s that Brian Ahern produced, and it had an all-star cast, um, including Emmylou Harris and Anne Murray on backup vocals and. Russ Kunkel on drums, Lowell George on guitar. Um, the cast just went on and on, Bill Payne on keyboards. Um, and that record got shelved. Um, so it never it never came out until years later when Holger Peterson, our friend, released it on Stony Plain. And had it come out when it was recorded, he'd probably be recognized now as someone like James Taylor or one of the great 70s singer-songwriters. And Bob was a bit of a lost soul, so he uh, continued to write songs forever, but he kind of really had disdain for the music business. And he was one of those guys that was, was like a bit of a gypsy traveler, and he just wanted to write his songs and, and play music, and he didn't really care about the business very much. So he never really went that far after that. Um, he passed away, boy, probably 15 years ago now, or 20 years ago even. But he was a huge talent. And uh, there's a record label in the States here called No Quarter Records. And they reissued the Bob Carpenter album. It's called Silent Passage. And if anybody's interested in, in great, great songwriters, especially from that time period, I highly recommend they find that record. Yeah. And I just got re recently, you know, introduced to him. But I, yeah, the yeah. Same, same experience, really. It's like... Well, first of all, how could it fly so much under the radar that I really didn't know about him? But then also, like, well, I should have. Yeah, and there's there's lots and lots of recordings of his demos and that kind of thing that hopefully one day I'll see the light of day. I know that, that Holger released another uh, album of demos, which is really good too, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff still that, that has to see the light of day, as there is with... A lot of the people from that time period, right? Like I know that you're archiving a whole bunch of stuff from the Muscle Shoals area. I can't wait to hear some of that too. 
Yeah, so while you, you know, mentioned that, let's talk a little bit about the importance of of preserving, you know, I guess recorded history, but like musical artifacts in general, and also a little bit, unfortunately, just the danger of losing a whole lot due to a lot of reasons, you know, due of, of, of the, you know, originators passing away and maybe not necessarily have anyone interested to, to keep, you know, being the keeper of the flame, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know we've had a lot of conversation about, you know, what can be done to make sure, you know, to save whatever can be saved and possibly make it accessible to people. That That's, you know, close to my heart, and I know it's to to yours, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, it's, uh, I think that the main two things that are happening right now and happening very quickly, part of the the collection of music that just about every musician has is suffering from tape deterioration. Um, so a lot of the, the tapes are just getting so old that they're almost at the stage where they're unplayable. Um, and the other thing that's happening is a lot of the folks that started the Roots Music world, started our folk festivals and started the record labels and were the promoters at folk clubs and that kind of thing, are all passing away just because we're all getting older. And most of them have got boxes of tapes in their basements. And uh, what tends to happen is that their families find these things and don't realize they have any value and they take them to the dump or they just throw them away. They also are might have made these recordings wherever they were with the promise to the person that was playing the music that the stuff would never get used in any way that anyone could make any profit from it. So. I think one of the reasons that the tapes are disappearing now is because they don't know where to send them, where they're safe legally, you know, or where they, it'd be beautiful if they could all end up in a place where people would archive them and protect them and make them available for people to listen to, but not profit from them, right? Because those were the original promises that were made. So we've been talking, myself and some other friends, about starting a foundation that would just do that, just be a, a safe place to collect everybody's archives. I mean, you think about it, most musicians that tour have got boxes of board tapes, um, live concert performances from all their years of playing. And the other, the third thing that I think that's happening, and this might not be very popular opinion, is that we are being so uh, inundated with music right now because it's so easy to go make a recording that that's taking precedence over the older stuff. Uh, that, that should be preserved. So um, due to the fact that technology makes it so easy for people to record, I think there's just more and more and more of that stuff coming out. And a, a fair bit of it probably doesn't have the same kind of value as some of these archives do in regards to actually protecting the, the history and the story of our musics, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And the one thing is, you know, preserve the recordings the other thing is also just keeping the music alive by, you know, giving the players, you know, opportunities to play, ex uh, expose younger folks to, to those artists. And the, there's this huge music or folk music festival 
circuit or, or scene in Canada that has been doing this for a long time, exposing, you know, the public to very eclectic music, different, different styles and all of that. And your festival is the Vancouver Island Music Fest. And yeah. uh, you've been doing this for 23 years now? With this festival, 23 years, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit of like how it originated and kind of how it evolved? In well, the festival aspects? itself is, is 25 years old. Um, it started as a small local festival to celebrate local music. And I was lucky enough to, to play at the first two um, with different people. And so I discovered that like on Vancouver Island, there's kind of two cities, Victoria and Nanaimo, and they're, they're both the, the more populated areas, but the audience for real music was really strong up in the Comox Valley where our festival takes place. So I moved up there with my family. It was also affordable. Um, and at the time, Victoria was becoming unaffordable and tried to create a festival based on the model of my days with the Edmonton Folk Festival, which was really a celebration of all kinds of music, right? And, and it's, a, it's a non-profit festival and it's run largely by volunteers, although we have five staff now, of which I'm one of them, but we have 1,400 volunteers. And it's a community event where really um, the whole focus of the festival, as long as I'm there, is just on the quality of the music and the varieties. And I'm not sure if this is true, but in Canada, and maybe in particular in Western Canada, we don't really have our own regional music styles, right? Like you can't really name a style of music that came from Canada, aside from like Métis fiddling, um, which is a real special style of fiddle playing, uh, East Coast folk music. And there's a couple of things, right? But you can't say blues or bluegrass or jazz or rock and roll or any of those styles really came from Canada. So I think we might have been more interested in the music from other places. You know, Canada's kind of a country full of mutts in a lot of ways. And uh, my development as a musician has always been assimilating and trying to come up with new fusions of music. So I think that's maybe why the history is a little bit different there. Whereas in the United States, it seems like a lot of the festivals are certainly more regional, uh, partly because the music comes from this part of the world, you know. Um, I mean, I know there's styles of blues that come from all the different regions of the United States, right? Or, or bluegrass or, or even country music, but we don't really have that in Canada. So it may have given us a bit of a different approach um, towards how we we're more, perhaps more open to what the word folk means, for example, you know. Yeah. Um, another thing I'm fascinated by right now is that I think most styles of roots music developed an isolated culture. Part of the reason that a style might have happened was because of the rhythms of that place and because of the dialect of that place and the, the food and the weather and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. And since we now have the internet and the explosion of worldwide communication. I don't think there are any more isolated cultures. Yeah. So for the, the whole lo local flavors get diluted. Yeah. Sure. So for the uh, the future of folk music, I'm really fascinated by that. Like it's it's going to become less regional, even more so, and, and 
we're going through this stage right now where people are doing um, a whole bunch of different collaborations, cross-cultural, multi-genre, and all that kind of thing. They have been for years, but more and more as a festival programmer, I see that happening, right? And I only see that really as a stage because it's only going to be interesting for so long. And I'm really curious to see what the next steps are going to be in the development of music. You know, are, are there going to be more styles? Is, is someone going to develop a new style of music? And if they do, where is it coming from? Is it going to come from, from the mud and the blood of wherever they're from? Or how will that develop, you know? And I, I think we're at an interesting place in music history for, for that reason. Yeah. And you're, you've been spearheading or part of many, like, intercultural collaborations too and we'll get to that in just a minute yeah. it's really interesting <laughs> but one thing that i uh, experienced when i went to the Edmund folk music festival this summer and that you touched on is that volunteer culture that you guys have up in canada something i mean you mentioned 1400 volunteers i mean that that's just an extraordinary number and i think the Edmonton folk festival has like 2500 or something yeah. like that yeah. and it's really the backbone of that makes oh, it's totally it, the backbone. it possible. And something I've never seen here at all, you know, I don't know if people, you know, that don't get an immediate return, either monetary or a sort of, you know, school credits or whatever, would even do that. And that's one thing I was really amazed at, just how, you know, how, how great that spirit is. It is. It's a, it's a fairly amazing thing. And I, I do think there are some festivals in the States that have that. Um, the Kerrville Folk Festival, for example, it's one of the ones I've been to and just outside of Austin, has that spirit as well. But I think it's a rare thing. Um, I've thought about that a lot too, because um, growing up in Alberta, in Canada, the volunteer spirit there is very high, as it is in Manitoba, where I also lived for a while. I moved up to the west coast of Canada and discovered that generally it's not as strong there. Um, there I mean, we're lucky in our community because we do have that spirit, but there's other places on the west coast that don't really have, have it as strongly, and sometimes I think that's weather-related, um, because if you live in a cold place, you really have to rely on your neighbors a lot more. Um, I think it might be a generational thing too, and I think we're in danger of losing it. Um, right now, as volunteerism is dropping all over Canada right now, which is an interesting thing as the baby boomers get older. Um, the idea of community has certainly changed with, with our kids. Like our, I know I've got four kids, and, and for my kids, their community exists within their cell phones and on the internet, that kind of thing. And I don't mean to belittle that, because to them it's completely real. It's just as real as our community to us but the original intent of these festivals I think was for again a, a fairly isolated community whether it was a city or or a way smaller place to get together and break outside of their day-to-day -day experience and, and all come together as a community and work on making an event happen and I know for a bunch of our volunteers um, that's the most important part of our festival the, the music is is secondary to that some of them just come because they want to be part of that community, right? Yeah. Um, 
we also have a campground at our festival with about 4,000 campers. So um, we have about 200 people that will come to the festival a week before it starts and give us a week of their lives to build, to build the festival. And then we have about 75 that will stay after to help tear it down. But for those people, the music is almost just an excuse for this community event to happen. And when I program the festival, I try to meet musicians that will understand that. Like they're, our festival is put on for the volunteers first, you know, and then secondly, it's put on for the audience. And thirdly, it's put on for the musicians who come. And we do our very best to treat everybody very, very well. All the, all the musicians are usually say they're treated as well or better there than they've ever been treated anywhere, which is part of the spirit of that whole thing. Um, but if you get one musician that comes that's uh, trying to make a career move or just thinking that it's all about them, it kind of really ruins the spirit of the thing, right? Uh, what's happening now in Canada and probably in the States too is there's more and more corporate festivals that are starting now or commercial for-profit festivals that don't have that spirit. Their, their real spirit is to make money. And that's the whole point of why they put on the, their events. And that's kind of polluting the waters a little bit these days too, because um, as they get more and more greedy, the music industry gets more and more greedy in response. And the reason for these festivals is starting to get cloudy, if, if you understand what I mean by yeah. that. It's, it's, uh, I'm really glad I got to grow up in the 70s and take part in these festivals in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Um, to me, I mean, I sound like an old fart saying this, but to me, that was the real magical time of festivals and music actually as well. And I, I only hope that um, music will remain as important to most people as it was back then, right? And yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in general. I mean, I know here in Nashville, music is, is still really important to a lot of people, right? But I don't think that's representative of what's happening all over the place right now. Yeah, and one just can hope that it maybe, you know, comes and goes in circles too, that yeah. you know, maybe hopefully that's something that becomes more appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the festival is a big part of your life. Then is also the playing and the production in the recording studio and a series of projects where you've been able to combine the producer's hat and the player were uh, recording projects that are called Slide to Freedom. Right, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that started and kind of what it is? Well, Slide to Freedom was, was a, a project, um, we made three records um, for a label called Northern Blues up in Canada. And um, it's with the great Indian slide guitar player named Vishwam Mohan Bhatt, who most people would know from the record that he made with Rai Cooter called A Meeting by the River, which won a Grammy, and his son Salil Bhatt, who was really my partner in Slide to Freedom. And uh, we had a various revolving member of cast members for the different projects that we did together. But I met them um, 
try to remember where now. I think it was at the Vancouver Folk Festival the first time I met them. And I'm a mostly a lap style slide guitar player. That's kind of my, my specialty. So I play dobro and, and other slide guitars. And I asked Vishwa after we played together in a jam session at, at a festival if I could come study with him. And he said to me, no. He said, no, you can't come study with me, but um, we'll make a record with you if you want to, which I took as a unbelievably huge compliment, right? Um, so we carried on to do that. We made, we made three albums over the period of about six years and toured together quite a bit. And it was a collaboration of mixture of uh, Indian slide guitar music and what I do. Um, and I think it was a really successful one. The reason being that I didn't try to play like an Indian musician and they didn't try to play like Western musicians. We just played and our own personalities came out uh, of the playing. And I think those are the cross-cultural collaborations that actually work. Most of them aren't that. Most of them you see that one side of the fence is trying to be too much like the other side of the fence. So we did, our first CD was um, basically just us and an amazing tablo player named Ram Kumar Mishra from India as well. And then our second one was with uh, the wonderful New Orleans singer named John Boutte. He came in and flew into Canada and, and we recorded with John. People would know him. He, he sang the theme song to the TV show Treme and he's one of the great New Orleans singers. And we had a couple of other guests. And then the third one, we recorded a CD in Memphis at Royal Studios with uh, special guests, including my friend Betty Sue from Austin, who's a wonderful singer-songwriter, and the great Sacred Steel players, the Campbell Brothers, were involved in that. And Calvin Cook, who was one of the fathers of Sacred Steel guitar as well. So that's as far as we've gotten with that project. And we're, we're now talking about a fourth one. Um, that we might do with a symphony orchestra, which would be a lot of fun to do that too. And um, since then, I've also met a South Korean slide guitar player, a woman who plays lap style, South Korean slide, which is uh, the way she plays is, is kind of like a step between Indian players and Western players. And it's not quite as frenetic as the Indian players. Um, it lies somewhere in between. So I want to do a project with her or with her and them. I'm not sure which, which way to go with that one yet. Um, and it's really fun. I mean, I've gotten to work with uh, Tibetan musicians and African musicians and musicians from a whole bunch of different cultures. And that's my favorite thing to do as a dobro player because Jerry Douglas and Rob Ikes have pretty well got it covered otherwise, you know, like it's pretty well been, been defined and discovered in bluegrass and country music. Yeah. Um, and I, I like to step outside and try to discover what what could happen with, with that instrument in other places. Yeah. And I'm sure you, you agree when I say no matter where you go, you always learn. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I know you're kind of on the other end of that spectrum too, that over the years you've done some educational uh, projects and and taught too. So how, how important is that to you? Maybe you can tell, talk a little bit about some of the you know educational videos that you've been involved with. Well, it's really important to me. Um, first off, as a musician, it's the best way to learn is to try to teach because um, 
often when you're teaching, someone asks you to explain something, and you may have you may have never explained that before, and you discover that you can explain it. And at the same time, you develop a deeper understanding of it yourself. I also I teach at a lot of music camps, um, and I've helped start a few of them and that kind of thing. And the reason I love music camps is because when you go to teach at a camp, it's all about music. There's no one's interested in the music business or anything like that. They just simply want to um, play. And I love that part as well because I still love the, the personal connection between a person and their music at, at whatever level they're at. Um, whether they're a pro or whether they're just starting out is, is one of the, the most beautiful things about music to me, you know. Um, and it's so refreshing after working in the business all the time to... As you know, as a studio guy, it's so nice to just get to the music, you know, and, and then the personal connection that you make with people, um, which is also why we do this. Um, so the, the teaching part is, is super important. It's also a good source of income. You know, I've, I've done books and videos and DVDs and all that stuff. And I had a company in Canada um, called LearnRootsMusic.com, and we produced 43 instructional DVDs with people like Amos Garrett and Martin Simpson, and we had a, we had a whole catalog of stuff, and I got to direct all of those. So I got to be the guy sitting behind the camera, asking the my favorite players how they do what they do, which was a great education as well. And that stuff's all about to be reissued by a, a wonderful company called Truefire, um, and they're one of the best, most up-to-date modern instructional companies on the internet. So that's all. We, we entered into that business right when the DVD market was about to crash. So it kind of was like going on a big spiral upwards and then it, within about a month it just dropped. And a part of that was because of YouTube because everybody just started putting these things on YouTube. Um, so we took that catalog and we filed it for a few years and said sooner or later somebody's going to be interested in this stuff even just from a historical perspective, you know. Um, but the study of music is, is, is my greatest joy, you know. Um, it's, it's why I do what I do. And if I could make my living only as a player doing really cool things, then that's what I would be doing, you know. But um, partly because of where I live and partly just because of the way the music business is, if you decide to be a full-time musician, you kind of have to either lock yourself in a box and do one thing and say, this is who I am and this is what I do, and then try very, very hard to go out and make a living doing that, or maybe be a studio musician, um, which is also a really cool thing. I'm not knocking it at all, but I've always had a really short attention span, and I really like to bounce around and try different things, you know, so I'm blessed because I get to do all this work in the music business, and that affords me to do only what I want to do with my music. And I feel really fortunate for, for that because I've toured a lot, you know, for 30 years I've toured and, and uh, that can become a really brutal way to make a living after a while. If you, after you've done it for a while, at first it's really fun and exciting, but it gets old if you have to be out there, you know, eight months out of the year or something like that. It's, it's really tough as you get older. Yeah. So we just talked about the educational videos, you, you know, creating content, 
going to your website, there's a lot of really interesting content on there too, like past interviews with Amos Garrett or Bob Carpenter, which I believe is one, maybe the only one accessible to the public uh, by Bob Carpenter. At yeah, this, I think, at this I think point. that might be true. Yeah. And for a while, you also had your own TV show. I did. <laughs> well, you did your homework. <laughs> well, just spending time together and talking about all sorts yeah. of things that... Uh, but anyway, can you tell me a little bit about that and what, kind of what the format was because it was you know, yeah, a musical um, conversation in a way. So. It was. It was called Sitting In and I had a different guest on every show. We did 70 episodes and we just sat and played and talked and it was, uh, it was really fun. Um, and uh, we had a really great crew, a great sound man and a really good floor director, which I learned how the floor director is the guy that um, if you have five cameras shooting, he's the guy that, that decides which camera is going to actually go to air. And the guy that the, the guy that I worked with, his name is Rod Horner, and he was an amazing mentor. And he was one of those guys that was able to make those split decisions. So we would film a show with five cameras, and by the time we were done, a half-hour show would take about an hour to film. And he was doing it all on the fly. So usually when you shoot a a video or a TV show like that, it's a really long, painful process because they shoot it and then they go in and edit it, right? And there's hours and hours and hours of editing involved. But he just did it like that. So we would do uh, two or three shows in an afternoon with three different guests or two different guests. And by the time we were done that afternoon, those shows were completely finished. Um, I've tried to revive that show, but I haven't been able to find that kind of a crew again, unfortunately. So we did 70 episodes with 70 different guests, many of whom are now gone. Um, they've passed on and uh, it started off as a local show in Victoria, BC, and it ended up being a national show in Canada for a short while. So it really took off. Um, and there were all kinds of great, great musicians on that show as well. Unfortunately, most of them are gone because um, I ended up with all the master tapes and I got tired of moving them because they were on three or four inch tape. So they took up a whole room to store them. And one day I got mad about 20 years ago with them and just took them all to the dump. <laughs> it's really a stupid thing to do. Yeah, you know? like breaking your own rule yeah. of preservation, if you will. Yeah. There's a few on, on, on the YouTube, though. You just search uh, sitting in with Doug Cox. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of really good ones on there. Um, one of them is... Uh, archive of the great slide guitar player named Bob Brosman, who was an American, um, had a very tragic life, but he was still a really great musician. And I'm really proud of that show and that it survived because it kind of archives a bunch of his approaches to playing that have, that have since disappeared, you know? Um, and there's a few other ones on, on there too. Yeah. So I feel like in the past 45 minutes, we, covered a lot of ground is there any particular project or collaboration or side of you you feel like we haven't had a chance no, to talk so. about <laughs> i don't think so but i could talk about music for hours just like just like you you know um no i mean i i just feel like i've i've, I've lived a totally blessed life i mean i'm uh 56 years old and, and I feel like I've gotten to do so many things, you know, 
so fortunate to have have had the journey that I've had, and uh, and I hope it'll continue for quite a while still, you know. But um, I have a whole bunch of new projects coming up that I'm working on, and it's is being Canadian. Um, part of that means that you think of an idea and then you go after the funding for it, which usually takes about a year, and. Uh, and then you do the project if you get the funding, you know. And there's other projects that are small enough. I'm going to be doing a record with a great, great blues guitar player from Portland, Oregon, named Mary Flower. And Mary is is one of my favorite players in, in April. But that's a small enough thing that we can just do it at my studio, in my house, you know. So I like to try to balance what I do with uh, really affordable projects and then the odd outrageous one. And uh, the, the you know the one thing I learned from doing this. CD I'm working on right now with April is that we took uh, about two years for this idea to develop and um, she phoned me and said she she wanted me to produce her next CD and then I said what kind of CD do you want to do and she had about six different ideas and we just kept whittling away at it till we kind of had a really clear idea of what what it would be and where we would do it and who would be involved and it, it was kind of a new lesson for me that um, Sometimes it's really worth letting these things percolate to the point where when you hit the recording studio, you've got a really clear, thought out artistic vision, you know, as to what you're doing. So I want to try and take that approach more in the future instead of just sort of haphazardly throwing musical projects together and recording that, that time period and then moving on to something else. You know, it's, it's really nice to be that focused and, and, Give yourself that time to develop a CD. I think the reason there's a lot of CDs out there now that are aren't that well thought out. It's they're just not that easy to listen to even because uh, it's almost too easy to make them at this point. You know. Yeah, that's certainly true. It's like there's like the different uh, maybe different gatekeepers and different kind of uh, you know hurdles to even be able to make a record. And now it's like, you can hum in your phone and put it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in, in some ways that's a good thing, isn't it? It is, you yeah. know, it makes a lot of things easier, but some, easy is not always good either, because right. it's, if you have to, you know, really work hard on a concept, then sometimes it might be even, yeah, the artistic value of it might, might be higher too. Yeah, it could be yeah. anyway. Yeah. But you mentioned you have your own recording setup yeah. at your place too. And let's say I'm, I'm this random you know, artist from Italy and needs some good dobro on my record, but there's no dobro player in my village. They can, I guess, reach out to you through your website. Absolutely. And say, hey, yeah. uh, this is what I need. And you, they can send you the files and then you can collaborate. Yeah, that's like, mostly what I do at my home studio is, is just lay down tracks for people. Um, yeah, and I love to do that too. It's really fun. Made a lot of close friends that way. Um, I, I, I was fascinated coming to Nashville to think there are musicians that have studios like that, but it's, it's almost like... Um, a long time ago, I thought I could come to Austin or Nashville and get to know people and play with them and then go home. And they would send me stuff to play on, but I discovered very quickly that that's just not the way things are done, right? So the minute you leave town, you're generally off the radar.
for uh, for being a, a player on a recording. Um, I also heard that in Nashville, like if you're a touring musician, you don't get a lot of studio calls because you have to be available. But if you're a studio musician, you don't get a lot of touring calls because same thing, you know, and I, I didn't really realize that. And uh, so most of the musicians that I work with have out of my home studio when I lay down tracks for them, they tend to live in more isolated areas as well, or in other countries, you know, or other cities, not including Nashville and Austin, which is, for me was a really cool thing to learn too. Yeah. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier that we met through Holger Peterson, who, you know, is, I mean, he's Order of Canada. He's like Absolutely. a really you know, well-known entity in Canada, like in roots music all over the world. He certainly is. Would yeah. you mind just saying a few words about Holger, maybe you guys' friendship and kind of what makes him him and what makes him the great, you know, music person he is? Well, the first, I mean, Holger and I have been friends since I was 18 years old. Um, so we've been, we've been lifelong friends for sure. And I think the first thing that makes Holger such an amazing person is that he really, first of all, he's one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. That goes without saying. Um, but he is a big music fan. And he's done very well in the music business with Stony Plain Records over the years. But I think for him, it always comes back to the music and, and to the stories of the musicians and that kind of thing. I'm, he's, he's still like a kid when it comes to talking about music or listening to music. And he's always interested in anything new or exciting. And he's always interested in the history. And he's, he's taught me so much about music and the music business, you know. Um, and he continues to be that way. I, I know, like, we come down here for Americana together every year. We have for the last few years. And I know he spends all his time just running around interviewing all these guys, right, that, that are his heroes. and. Uh, he he makes use of that way. He's got a national radio show on CBC called Saturday Night Blues and the oldest running blues radio show in Canada on the CKUA radio network in Alberta. He does a lot of these interviews for his radio shows and now he's writing books that feature them as well. But I think he'd be doing this even if he didn't have an outlet for it. You know, it's just his sheer love of music and, and of collecting records. And, that kind of thing really, really make him who he is, you know. He's also a drummer. I don't know if you know that about him. I, I didn't know he was still, but I knew that yeah. that's <laughs> kind of how he got started, too. Yeah, and he uh, he's re he's made some pretty important recordings over the years, some really historic recordings, you know. He will help anybody. I mean, anybody that reaches out to him, he, he goes really out of his way to help them and support them and develop them. So... He's a, yeah, he's, he's one of North America's musical heroes, really, you know, in, in all the work that he's done. Yeah, and as he, you know, started out, just the greatest guy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He does it from a real humble place and from a real love for, for the music, you know, and I think that that really makes a difference, you know, and, and anybody that's done it for as long as he has, not just ended up bitter and jaded and twisted <laughs> because of the music business. It's pretty admirable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, to conclude this, and I know you're always busy and you always have a lot of projects. 
cooking. Uh, right now, you're already knee-deep in, you know, programming and preparing the next edition of, of your festival, which will take place from the 12th through the 14th of July. That's right. Year. And uh, besides that, what are some of the projects you you have coming up? Well, I'm working on uh, some more educational stuff for True Fire. I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing uh, some lessons for them, and I'm starting a channel for them that's going to be based on interviewing musical legends that are uh, people that are sort of inventors of styles of playing or that kind of thing, but might not necessarily be the world's greatest teachers. So I'm going to start interviewing them and, and specifically asking them about their playing. And some of that stuff will start to show up uh, through True Fire over the next while. I'm working on a musical, the project with my new trio, like you said, the primary colors. I'm working with Mary Flower. Um, I'm going to be doing uh, hopefully this project with the South Korean guitar player. Those are kind of the main ones right now. I'm always doing a bunch of other stuff too. I, I, You're going to folk lines. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, and collaborate with a whole bunch of people there. Too. Yeah, that's mostly just to have fun. You know, I'm just going to go there and um, for the last three years I ran the music camp at Folk Alliance and I'm not doing that now. So the last three years I haven't really gotten to just take part in the conference. Um, so this year I'll, it's in Montreal and I'll be going there as a scout for our festival. But also I'm going to go and just play with my friends and, and uh, get back to the music again every chance I get, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I wish you just the best of luck with all of your projects coming up. Thank you, Andres. And thank, thank you so you. much for, for spending this past hour with me talking about your life and music. My pleasure. Thanks so much. This was the 46th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Crazy Chester Studio in Nashville. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to check out some of our earlier episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour on iTunes or check it out on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn or Stitcher. That's it for today. See you next week.